Welcome back to the Dutch Podcast, where integrative medicine providers can expand their understanding of functional endocrinology and testing. And everyone, no matter who you are, can learn more about their body's most complex communication system. I'm Noah Reed, Vice President of Sales and Marketing for the Dutch Test. Coming up on this week's episode, we're back in our Endocrine Essential series with the basics of cortisol. Cortisol is the stress hormone and can tell you a lot about how someone manages stress by looking at the first hour and a half of their day. The cortisol awakening response, or CAR, acts as a mini stress test to show how your body uses cortisol to wake up and feel alert. Our guest, Dr. Christina O'Brien, will be covering the CAR, metabolized cortisol, and more on this week's episode, so stay with us. Dr. Christina O'Brien is a chiropractor, Institute for Functional Medicine Certified Practitioner, and is board certified in functional neurology. She is also a registered nutritionist dietitian and is certified in acupuncture. Dr. O'Brien uses a whole person approach. This approach is a combination of detecting underlying interferences, which may inhibit the body's natural ability to heal itself, along with the inspiration and knowledge and support for people to achieve better health through better living. Dr. O'Brien is dedicated to helping people reduce their risk of lifestyle-related preventable chronic conditions, including chronic pain, as well as encouraging them to become more responsible for promoting optimal health and well-being. And now, onto the show. Okay, Dr. Christina O'Brien, so glad that you could join us today. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. I wanted to have a nerdy cortisol person on so we could talk about the HPA axis and all of that. So we're always talking about comprehensiveness and, you know, we want to characterize well a person as it relates to whatever family of hormones we're talking about, in this case, cortisol. So tell us like what testing tells you about the person's HPA axis and stress response. Just talk generally a little bit big picture, and then we'll narrow in on some of the finer details of that. So start sure. sure. So we know that prolonged stress either causes or intensifies a whole host of illnesses like um, ulcers and colitis and depression and anxiety. And when we experience stress, our body turns on the same physiological response that we would see in nature in an animal. But in humans, what we often see is that rather than the fight, flight, and freeze that an animal experiences and then moves on from really quickly, humans tend to not be able to respond quite as quickly. And over time, this chronic activation of the stress response over and over and over again reduces our metabolic threshold and literally can make us sick and make us sick or sicker than we were to begin with. And when we see a patient who's experiencing stress and experiencing isolation and depression and anxiety and those types of things, chronic illness or acute illness, we want to know how their body is able to respond in the moment to a stressor and some people respond better than others, but a way to measure that is really important for a clinician so that we know where to meet the patient and how to best help them 
to get better. And there's no, really, there's no better way clinically to measure that than using the cortisol awakening response. Well, and, you know, it's our, not our fault that we have consciousness. So the zebra, you know, gets chased by the lion, but isn't yep. also going through a divorce and COVID lockdowns and all of that. So for us, lots of issues we have to deal with in terms of just that stress response and whether we can actually turn it off and return mm -hmm. to normal. And so, yeah, we're trying to look at the consequences of that in the laboratory testing. So what are the big picture, like categories of information that you're trying to get from the testing? What are those big questions you're trying to ask as you look at a Dutch Complete or a Dutch Plus for your patients that you think might have an issue with their HPA axis? Sure. And, you know, the reality is I don't know that we have any patients anymore without some type of impact to their HPA axis. Um, everybody's experiencing stress. Um, we live in a really stressful world at a really stressful time. Um, and, and we really want to see how each individual person is responding to that. And we used to think of um, adrenal output and measuring the HPA axis and describe it in terms of adrenal fatigue. And there was a three-stage model that we used that was really simple to understand but really was oversimplified and not very accurate scientifically. So now... We know, and we're, I think, getting better and better at describing really the way it works is we have still, we can describe it in three stages, but we have stage one being an ongoing acute stressor, like having a stressful job or taking care of a sick family member. And we'll typically see cortisol elevated in those situations. And then stage two um, we have often normal lab values for cortisol, which can confuse some providers because they expect, oh, they're under stress, we're going to see a high cortisol, but we don't always see that. We have um, a way of protecting ourselves, and we downregulate the HPA axis and look like we're producing normal amounts of cortisol when in reality we're experiencing a lot of stress is just more chronic than acute. And we'll often see, and this is why looking at other factors are also important, DHEAS below normal in patients who are experiencing chronic stress. And then the stage three is we see long-term stress, which will often, most of the time, show up as a depleted cortisol and DHEAS output. Um, and that we can refer to as burnout um, and because this this the way that we measure adrenal function is a measurement of adrenal hormone output people incorrectly for years assumed that this represented function within the adrenal glands itself um, but we know now this is more related to the response of the adrenals to a stressor um, and it's really more a way of measuring HPA axis activity, and we just use the adrenal hormone as surrogate markers. So we can more appropriately talk about things like HPA axis dysfunction or um, hypocortisolism or hypercortisolism um, or other things that are really more... Um, related to the function of the HPA axis rather than true functioning of the adrenal glands. When we talk about adrenal gland 
function truly being high or low, that's a very serious and potentially life-threatening situation where we're talking about things like Addison's or not enough ACTH being secreted from the pituitary gland or a brain dysfunction, a hypothalamic dysfunction um, because of long-term glucocorticoid use. So there are, there are lots of ways now that we really know that we can define this. And those are things that we want to look for in patients when we're talking about the HPA access. And some of the biggest things I see in practice, things that we can do something about, that we can modify, that are dysregulating somebody's HPA access currently are things like a blood sugar dysregulation um, or inflammation or a sleep disturbance or even perceived stress. Um, which is a fascinating area of, of research to me and in my own practice and really understanding that people, even if they're worrying about something, if it's not an actual thing, it's almost like wishing it to come true because they're focusing on it and thinking about it and perceived stress really to the brain is the same as um, actual stress and using the cortisol awakening response to quantify that with concrete data points is the absolute best way for providers to help patients to understand where they're coming from and to meet them where they are and to help them to get better. Which is interesting for you as a person on staff with us and a person who, who came on to work for us being someone who didn't actually use the cortisol awakening response, because when we started, it was Dutch complete, right? Which gives yep. you the up and down pattern of free cortisol, which is one important metric, yep. right? Which you can get from urine with the Dutch complete. You can get it from saliva um, with any saliva test, looking at that up and down pattern. And then the cortisol awakening response adds extra value to that and an extra marker. So what was it that was compelling to you to sort of shift in your mind of thinking that the primary uh, most important thing that we could look at with that up and down pattern is the cortisol awakening response itself. So explain what that is and why it convinced you that, of its importance. Absolutely. So the cortisol awakening response, or also called the CAR, is a predictable increase in cortisol that happens in the morning right after you wake up. So the cortisol awakening response is an increase in cortisol measured then between when you wake up, which is considered time zero, and the peak in cortisol output for the day, which it should be, not always, but should be, um, which is approximately 30 and at the very outside about 45 minutes after waking, um, and really not just the absolute amount measured at that 30 to 45 minutes post-awakening, but at that moment, 30 to 45 minutes post-awakening. And it's a result of two different things. So first, it's the momentum of rising cortisol levels that starts actually several hours before you wake up because of normal circadian rhythm, which hopefully we have some fragment of normal circadian rhythm left when we're doing this testing, although not always, especially for night shift workers, it changes really everything. Um, so ACTH levels are rising and we're waking up. And the second is a more transient spike, 30 to 
at the most 45 minutes um, in cortisol, it's about a 50% increase. And we measure it at percentage increase to help us better understand what's happening. And this is in response to light. Um, the brain responds to light. There's a part of the brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus that sees light and responds to it. And we see this waking um, superimposed almost on the circadian dynamic of the HPA axis is all controlled by light, which is why when we wake up in the afternoon, if we're taking a nap, there's no cortisol awakening response there. So when you look at the literature and you really see what's happening, we know that the cortisol awakening response is really um, the most not only reported measure of cortisol used in clinical research, but the most accurate way to test the HPA axis for clinical abnormality. So you're you're saying there's a circadian rhythm and the, the cortisol awakening response is superimposed on that. So when is the bottom? When do people bottom out in terms of cortisol production? Not right before waking, but is it earlier than that? So, it, you know, it, it it's often depends on the patient. So we see... Uh, rise in melatonin that is seen with the lowest levels of cortisol. So in theory, the lowest levels of cortisol should be at nighttime when we're sleeping, when melatonin is highest, but those curves are not always inverse. And that's where when we're measuring um, the cortisol awakening response, we can see not only is the, how is somebody responding to their body's ability to wake up and for their day but we're also measuring in most cases the stressors of the day before and when i first started using dutch testing i was doing the urinary cortisol diurnal curve and i used it in clinical practice for years and years and didn't even know embarrassingly of uh, much about the car or why it was really important. And when I started working with providers, um, talking to providers all day long about their test results, I started to recognize patterns in the cortisol awakening response where I could see what I felt like were neurological dysfunctions in people based on their cortisol awakening response. And it started as you know, I prepare every day to get ready for providers and I look at the tests and results and I look at what the patient has written on their form and often that doesn't tell the full story of what's happening with the patient. So when I would see, say, a blunted cortisol awakening response or an elevated cortisol awakening response, I would assume something about the patient. And then when I got on the provider, I, with the provider, I would often ask them, did they recently have a concussion or... Are they dealing with depression or anxiety or um, different aspects of, of what we can measure using the car? And the vast majority of the time, the provider would say, well, how did you know that? We didn't even talk about that or they didn't put that on the form or, you know, that's something I didn't know about the patient. So it's a way um, waking really acts like a mini stress test for the HPA axis, which is influenced by the plasticity of the brain really. So how adaptable are you in animals? Like we talked about really adaptable. They can have a stressor and then go right back, but the longer we're under stress, the less adaptable our brain becomes. And it 
really directly influences our stress response, directly influences our energy levels. Um, how stressed out we feel, how alert we are during the day, it addresses our blood sugar management or lack thereof. It addresses how anxious we are, depressed we are, how much we're worrying about things. It tells us about someone's autoimmune process. Are they developing an autoimmune process or do they have an autoimmune progression? Are they able to control their inflammation or do they have neuroinflammation that we can see? Um, have they had a recent infection? How is their memory? And then even cancer outcomes in, in the literature we could see based on someone's cortisol awakening response. So the cortisol awakening response is related to many of the factors um, that go on with dysfunction. So let's narrow it down mm -hmm. and start on the low side. So when you're talking about a cortisol awakening response that's flat, so you wake up and it's at one place and you're expecting it to jump up by say 50% over that half hour and it just doesn't, it's sluggish. So what are the things that you find clinically that most often are correlating to a low or sluggish cortisol awakening response? Yeah, so with that, with a low car, and we see different variations of that too, based on what's happening with the person. And that's part of the really fun part about it and where you can really, with those concrete data points, really target therapies for people. And to me, that's so exciting um, where we can say, okay, they have a blunted car at this point or at this point, and we know that we can shift our therapy based on that. But with a low car, we could see um, most often, the result of an underactive HPA axis, someone with excessive psychological burnout, um, someone with seasonal affective disorder. I'm in Dallas right now, so talking to people in the north, um, we, we relate to those in the, in the winter when they're experiencing those things. We'll see a low cortisol awakening response when it's actually seasonally relevant. And um, people who have poor sleep or have sleep apnea and people with PTSD, um, people with chronic fatigue, and also chronic pain, um, people with systemic hypertension and functional GI disorders, and people with postpartum depression, people with autoimmunity, usually um, an autoimmune process that is progressing or is advancing, and people who've had a recent concussion are probably the most common things that I see when I have somebody or when I'm looking at someone's results with a blunted cortisol awakening response. And you're able to, I want to maybe split hairs a little bit here. Um, it gives you more information about whether that HPA axis is indeed, let's just use the word sluggish or not. So if you go back in time to more of our old school options of mm -hmm. a saliva report that doesn't have that, that baseline. So it's, it's the diurnal pattern but not the car, which is similar to the Dutch Complete, where we get that nice up and down pattern, but you don't specifically get a car. So are most of those things that you just listed also consistent with a generally low cortisol profile when you don't have the car? And then the car allows you to tease out a little bit more exactly how dysfunctional it is on the low side, or are some or most or all of those things you listed specific to, to when the car itself is low, does it apply to both of those situations, a low overall cortisol pattern and a low car, or is it one or the other? Does that make sense? It, yes. So there is a correlation, a clear correlation between post-waking cortisol results 
And for example, major depressive disorder, which would be a more elevated part. We can clearly see, um, just looking at the cortisol, we can see how people are responding to waking. But the, the magic really is in that percentage change between the first sample and the second sample and the second sample and the third sample. And that's where those things that we just talked about are truly illuminated. We can assume and, and looking at a normal diurnal curve is not an inaccurate way to look at somebody's HPA axis activity. But we absolutely cannot duplicate that mini stress test for the day without looking at that cortisol awakening response. That percent change is what illuminates everything for us. So we talked about uh, the low side of things when the HPA axis is sluggish or depressed. Uh, so what are the clinical correlators that you see when a car is exaggerated? So it's, it's bigger than you expect to see. It's a big bounce in the morning. Uh, what do you see with that? So when I typically see when we have an elevated cortisol awakening response, um, an overactive HPA axis, or somebody who has ongoing job-related stress, where their anticipatory stress for the day is elevated because this truly is a mini stress test for the day. How is the patient's body responding to the day that they're facing? Um, sometimes when the alarm goes off and people are startled by it and can slightly elevate the cortisol awakening response, um, the car can be a little bit higher um, then we would expect to see if someone typically wakes up early or is just naturally a morning person. Um, we could see um, generalized depression disorder in an elevated car, not as much the seasonal affective disorder, which typically will show a low car, but generalized depression will elevate the cortisol awakening response. Um, somebody who wakes up with an active infection or inflammation will show a higher car than expected. Um, we will see a higher car around ovulation. Um, and we'll see a higher car in somebody who has a blood sugar dysregulation. So it seems like you're discussing two somewhat separate situations, which are interesting to tease out and important to put into context for the interpretation. So you mentioned like anticipatory stress. Right. So if you wake up on the day of an exam or you have an exam every day in terms of like lots of stress, then you could have an exaggerated car. And that would be a normal response to the life you're living and maybe point to some lifestyle changes that are needed. Would that sound like a correct interpretation? That's absolutely right. When we, when we look at the research, we could see that um, the cortisol awakening response for people who have ongoing job-related stress is different on a weekday than a weekend day. So it is reflective of your current life experience. And that's what's beautiful about measuring the cortisol awakening response is that we can quantify how your body is responding to your life currently. And then, so a different interpretation of that, if I, if I drop into someone's life on a day when they don't have a particularly high amount of stress, and yet their cortisol awakening response is high. So my interpretation of that would be that your stress response is actually overactive, meaning That's you can right. have too much stress and you get a result, or you can have a stress response that is exaggerated. Um, both are problematic, but the solution may be different. Is that, is that a correct interpretation of what That's you're exactly saying right. and what can cause mm -hmm. that? That's exactly right.
Okay, so, so then different solutions depending on what's actually driving that car, which is where then your job of asking good questions of your, of your patient is really important. That's exactly right. One of the things we sometimes discuss as it relates to the car is, of course, if you collect it incorrectly, you're going to get results that don't make sense. What sort of pattern would you see where you would want to lean into that with your patient and ask some follow-up questions about like, wait a minute, let's make sure that you got this right in terms of timing. What would that look like for you? Right. So if we have, you know, especially after talking to a provider or if I have my own patient that I'm working with and I see a hugely blunted cortisol awakening response or really way over amplified cortisol awakening response. And it's not something that we would expect to see. We wanna ask about collection and timing um, and using salivary cortisol seems like it's pretty straightforward, but it, it's important to make sure that um, compliance is, is on point um, and emphasizing to the patient the importance of following the instructions carefully cannot be overemphasized. Emphasized. So when we see a, a, a huge blunting, I think would be probably the most often, most common thing that I see when someone collects incorrectly, where they really don't collect in that first five minutes of waking up, but they wait a little bit and they you know, get up and move around. And, and we always want to recommend that they keep the, the collecting device at their bedside so that they truly do do it within the first five minutes. And then exactly at 30 minutes, we have them set a timer and we talk through these things with patients. Clinicians talk through them. It's important that they do setting a timer for that 30 minute mark and that 60 minute mark so we can get as absolutely close to the cortisol, the true cortisol awakening response for that person that we can. So it sounds like the baseline sample of making sure it is actually a baseline sample within the first five minutes of waking is a really key point to where that data is going to actually speak uh, accurately about their stress response. That's exactly right. That first five minutes is key to making the data from the cortisol awakening response relevant to that patient. Which gives me this really pretty up and down pattern. And I get a pretty up and down pattern when I look at the Dutch complete, like it's up and it's down and I collect on waking, but I'm collecting a urine sample. So why do we not call that, what you see in urine, up? Why is that not a cortisol awakening response? That's a terrific question, and I hear that often from providers. And when we wake up, we're measuring everything that was in the bladder overnight, right? And that's what we typically see on the urine test. It still tells us what's happening with someone's cortisol, first thing in the morning, no question. But the saliva sample, and particularly using the small cotton collection device, rather than spitting into a tube directly, gives us that in the moment cortisol response that is where all of that most valuable data lies in the cortisol awakening response. And if we can grab the tiniest window possible and really get that true within the first five minutes, but even first minute or two of awakening, of awakening, we're able to really get that true car and truly measure that patient's stress test for the day. So it matters what it represents. So what you're saying, what I hear you saying is the waking urine sample is interesting, but it mm -hmm. represents, it's basically an overnight urine. And if you do a waking sample in saliva, but you use more of a traditional collection, 
then the sample requirement in terms of volume is going to take you long enough such that it's not really a true waking sample, it's waking plus, which doesn't give you as accurate of a measurement of the car, which is why we chose the little cotton swabs instead of, hey, fill this tube up with spit. Right. And it seems like, well, in a way, well, okay, so what? It takes five minutes versus one minute, but it does make a huge difference and it makes it more efficient and it allows us to truly measure that car. And, and it's, again, not to say that a, a urine sample is inaccurate, right? Because I, in clinical practice, use just urine for years and years and years and got terrific results. But adding the cortisol awakening response is adding and superimposing such a valuable layer on truly assessing that patient's stress response in the moment. Okay, so it's key. It's one of the things we love. So I want you to add to it and just explain to people the cortisol awakening response is a picture and it's it's a single variable that's important. So how would you describe the rest of what we would call the Dutch plus? I'm looking at the cortisol awakening response and I'm also looking at measurements of like what are the what are the things as you work through that information that you're that sort of hierarchy of information that you're looking at as it relates to what's going on with the HPA axis. So when we look at the not only the cortisol awakening response collected in saliva, but when we're talking about using urine for collecting that two-hour post-waking sample, we're again collecting all of the cortisol that's in the bladder from waking to two hours later. But when we use that cortisol awakening response, we're collecting those morning time points, those three time points first thing in the morning, but then we're able to collect the dinner time and bedtime and overnight sample using those same cotton swabs in those collection tubes to collect an in the moment cortisol for each collection point for the rest of the day, which again gives us a more immediate result or immediate data point for how best to help that patient, not just in the morning, but throughout the day in current time rather than in whatever was in the bladder for X number of minutes. It's in, in the moment, much more accurate in a minute, usually not even five minutes with what's happening with that cortisol so, and, and we can truly better help the patient that way. So if I'm categorizing that information in terms of what I'm getting, um, having those samples later in the day tells me what's going on there. And that's helpful. Maybe it's low, maybe it's high. That's helpful. That's one variable at dinner, at bed, at those time points. Those are interesting. Those are useful. Then there's also the diurnal pattern itself, right? How is that overall up and down pattern throughout the day, which is an important variable? So I've got the cortisol awakening response. That's a variable. I've got the diurnal pattern. That's a variable. I've got those individual points of how is my life and my stress and my cortisol levels in the afternoon, in the evening, at bedtime, at those points. Uh, what else do you see, and, I, and I'm probably leaning a little bit into like the metabolites and some of the other things we look at, for the Dutch plus diurnal pattern, cortisol awakening response, individual time points, what else are you able to get out of that because of the comprehensiveness of what we're measuring? So when we have, so when we just have the cortisol awakening response, that's our mini stress, for, stress test for the day, we could see how the person is waking up, how they're responding to that day in general. But the diurnal pattern of cortisol, whether in urine or saliva, with the car, 
is the least invasive and absolute best single biomarker for a snapshot assessment of the HPA axis in routine clinical practice, because we can see not only their cortisol awakening response, but their entire diurnal curve. And when we start to see dysregulation in that diurnal curve, not just the curve, but the diurnal curve, we start to see things showing up in different areas of their life clinically. We can start to see more illness develop. We can see dysregulation of blood sugar and certainly of sleep. So when we combine, then that car superimpose that on a diurnal curve, urine or saliva curve, we can make a patient's protocol more robust um, because we then have a bigger picture and we're learning the bigger story about what's happening happening as far as the activity of the patient's HPA axis. And then when you add things like metabolized cortisol to that picture, total and free cortisol and cortisone with a DHEAS, then you, you're now expanding the window of the protocol that you can provide that patient in order to be able to best help them adapt to their daily life. Um, we can even use things like heart rate variability, where we can add then another layer to that, where we're talking about, um, you know, measuring their cortisol for stress, but also measuring HPA axis dysfunction on a whole different level. So then what do you say to the doctor colleague that says, listen, if I talk to my patient, this is my crude translation, and I just guess, like, I'm pretty darn good at it, so I don't need a test. Um, I've heard that from a number of people. Like, the testing is not that helpful. I listen to my patient. I know what's going on. I treat them. Like, having practiced and then also now working for us, staring at hundreds and thousands of these things, um, how would you encourage someone like that that's, that's working without the testing? So, I mean, there, there, are, there are things you can certainly do, you know, roughly to help people in general when they're not testing. Um, but I've always had in, in my clinical experience has been that being more data-driven and actually looking at the numbers will always give you a clearer picture of what's happening with the patient. I can't tell you how many times I've had providers on the phone where we're looking at the patient's requisition form and the provider says, wait a minute, that patient never told me that. I didn't know that about the patient. So even even a, a slightly different assessment of the patient's current status on our requisition form is enlightening to some providers. So clinically, I don't ever pretend to know um, well enough on my own without the data. And there's no better example, I think, than having results talking to a provider, letting the provider come up with a really robust protocol based on the testing that we see, and then three months, four months, or six months later, getting to see the gift of getting to see the result of the robust protocol that the provider put them on by having them retest again and looking at their car again and looking at their diurnal curve again and getting to see the actual data, they feel better, yes, you know, their, their life feels different. They're responding better to things. 
their subjective results are clearly better, but there's nothing like being able to see the objective results that we can see even on retest with a patient where we've worked together and the providers come up with this great protocol and you know, totally, we're gonna make this huge difference and they implement that and the patient is receptive and they actually make those changes, then we see a retest and it's like, okay, everybody's literally doing a happy dance because that person is truly better and we can see it in the data and there's no better way than knowing that we're actually making a change than looking at that data. Well, and our, our, our mission as a company is to profoundly change as many lives as we can, which loosely translated is to create as many happy dances as we yes. can for both providers totally. and patients. So yes. this is a topic um, that needs illuminating. I know it can be confusing. And so uh, thank you so much for joining us and clearing up uh, the value of some of the different pieces of the HPA access testing that we have uh, and making that more manageable for our providers to understand. So thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. O'Brien, thank you so much for joining us today. And to all of our listeners, thank you. If you found any of these episodes helpful, we'd really appreciate it if you take the time to rate and comment on your favorite streaming app. We're still a new podcast and we'd love your support. So please like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your friends. On next week's episode, we're continuing the cortisol theme in our Endocrine Essential series. Now that we all have a baseline understanding of cortisol and what it is, now we get to learn about what to do with the different patterns in cortisol testing. So stay tuned for the resident Dutch expert, Dr. Kelly Roof, to walk us through some patterns and case studies. I'm Noah Reed. Thanks for joining. Until next time. Thank you.